Let's pray. Father, we trust in you to declare and proclaim through your very own words who you are and what you're like. And as we dig into your word to discover those truths, we pray uh, that you would reveal exactly what you want us to see, as long as it's from your word, and that we would be satisfied in who you are and who we are in you through Christ. So I'm just calling upon you, Father, that you would fill me with your spirit, fill all of us with your spirit, and that he would work for your glory and our satisfaction in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I think that today is, I'm gonna have to say some things today that I think might, for some of you, be hard to swallow. Um, If maybe you've never thought about these things before. For others, it will be like, yeah, I kind of believe that or understood that, but didn't really have enough maybe biblical evidence or reason to confirm it. And for some of you, it'll just be further confirmation of what you already believe. So there'll be a variety of different feelings about the things that we're going to discuss today. Um, But I just want to prepare your heart because I think this is hard stuff, not only to hear, but it's just as hard for me to say, regardless of how much I believe it. It doesn't make it easier. But it is a great joy to proclaim truths about God that we might have to believe that cause us to shift our paradigm about who God is. That's called growth. Um, The other thing is what we're going to discuss today regarding God's sovereignty. Um, There just isn't enough sermons in a lifetime to cover it all. Okay, so... Like I say, every time I discuss big ideas, big theological concepts in one message, I always preface it with this qualifier that uh, you might leave with more questions than answers. And that's okay because we're all growing and that's part of life. That's what growth is. And that's okay. So um, I just wanted to prepare your heart and mind for that. And so we're in 1 Timothy 6.15 and... This is Paul's doxology, which is an expression of praise, like a liturgical expression of praise. And doxology is not just praise, but it also clarifies the reason for the praise. So the doxology itself is praise, and within it is the reason for the praise. As God is exalted in praise, the doxology teaches us the reality of the nature of God as the cause for praise. And one of those realities of God's nature that Paul finds vital to cause praise to God is his sovereignty. So we'll break down this verse in three parts. We're going to look at uh, the words only and the words sovereign and then the words king of kings and lord of lords. And then I'll explain just a very partial aspect of God's sovereignty as an attempt to convince you that his sovereignty is not just a synonym for his power but that scripture truly reveals the absolute and total control and rule and reign 
over every molecule, every being, every thought, every person, and every human body, mind, and will, including those that are evil. So, verse 15, Paul says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, there's an adjective here, and there's a noun, both important. Only, that's an adjective. Sovereign, that's a noun. So the adjective only that comes before the noun sovereign, what it does is it modifies the noun to clarify something about that noun. And the clarity that the adjective only provides is that God alone is this thing. And if God alone is sovereign, then this is a defining aspect of his nature. It is who he is, not temporarily, not partially, but fully and eternally and infinitely sovereign, which is why in your Bible it is capitalized because it is so identifiable as his nature that it is his name. Now, God being the sole being who alone is sovereign is logically required if it is to be genuine and absolute control, rule, and reign over all things at all times and in all ways, because if more than one being was sovereign, then none would be sovereign. Does that make sense? Explain it. Two beings cannot both be sovereign because they would negate each other's sovereignty because the very nature of the word sovereign requires total and absolute control over all things. So if there is at least one other person or being that is also sovereign, then neither can be sovereign over the other, therefore making both of them not sovereign at all because the very definition of sovereignty requires singular control over everything. Therefore, sovereignty is an attribute that God not only does not share with us, but that he cannot share with us. So we call this an incommunicable attribute versus his communicable attributes. Communicable attributes being things that he gives to us, the things that he is but also gives to us. God is love, we can love. God is gracious, we can be gracious, merciful, patient, faithful. All those things that God is, he also shares with us and we can be those things too. But there are aspects of God's nature that he cannot and does not share with us. There are ways in which he is transcendent, far beyond and above us. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and sovereign. He is supreme. His grandeur is unimaginable. Those are characteristics of God's attributes that he is alone. Now... To put the king of kings and lord of lords into context, in the first century, Rome ruled the world. And the emperor of Rome was considered the ultimate authority and ruler of all things within his realm, which at the time was most of the known world. So Paul tells us here that God is sovereign, and he says it so to counter the cultural norm, which was common in the first century, which was essentially worship of the emperor. And this is why Paul qualifies God's sovereignty by saying that he is king of kings and lord of lords. This is Paul's way of saying uh, the emperor is not rule. He does not rule. He is subject to God's authority. And that is Paul's, that is Paul's point is that the emperor is subject to God's 
rule and God's reign, and he's subject to the will of God, to the sovereign will of God. All earthly kings and lords and leaders in the world, whether it's the Roman emperor or the president today or any world leader at any point, any time, all over the world, they all submit to God's sovereign will. Whether they realize it or not, it's happening. And it must be that way for God to accomplish his perfect will and his greatest glory. And if they must submit, whether they realize it or not, if they're being, if everything they do is caused by God's sovereign will, he is directing all things, and they are evil, which they often are, then that means that God has absolute and total sovereign control over their evil just as much as he has control over all other affairs. So right now at this point, I have only used logic and reason to explain myself. I'm going to do that just a little bit more, and then I'm going to show you. So I want to pose a question for you, because this idea of evil is essentially where we're going to go. I want to pose a question for you, and I want you to finish the question with your own words. Give you just a second to think about it. You might not come up with the completion of this question yourself right now, but I want you to go home and think about it. Here's the question. If God is sovereign, if God is sovereign, then how or why blank? If God is sovereign, then how or why blank? You, you can fill that in with whatever you want. Whatever question you have, whatever thought you have, you can even change the question up a little bit. But the essential question is, if God is sovereign, then how do I account for these things that I know, these realities I experience, and these questions that I have? They're worth asking, and they're worth exploring. And here's the thing. Everyone in this room could fill in that blank, fill in that question with a different question. If God is sovereign, then does he control my will? If God is sovereign, do I have free will? If God is sovereign, then how does he find fault in me if he's in control of my will? That's the question that the Romans ask. Paul answers in Romans 9. We will not answer it today. If God is sovereign, does that make us robots? If God is sovereign and he controls all things and evil exists then does that mean God causes all evil? There are many more questions to ask here, and I want you to take time this week to think about that. How do you fill in that blank? How, what kind of question do you ask? And I'm sure that after you ask the one question, you'll think of more questions, and that's good. We should be thinking about these things. And if I'm standing here telling you that this is what, I, this is what Scripture is saying, and I read Scripture for you, and it says these things, And that's hard for you to swallow. That's okay that that's difficult. I want you, God wants you to wrestle with his word. Believe it or not, the Bible wasn't just written to be a comfort to you. The Bible was also written to grow you, to stretch you, to challenge you. It's it's a difficult book, not an easy one. And what do we love as humans? Ease, comfort, peace, Joy, And so we go to the verses that make those things possible. We go to the verses that are comforting and easy to read. And we go to the text that all Christians agree with, that everybody, God is love. What a comfort. 
come to me if you're tired or weary and I'll give you rest. Like those kinds of things are, are just the, the verses that we kind of just cuddle up next to. It's like, this makes me feel good. And that is totally wonderful. Keep doing that. That's what it's here for. But there is another side to the Christian faith and to our walk with Jesus, which is growth. I mean, think about the disciples. Did the disciples have an easy life? Were they like, hmm, Jesus, when you speak, your words just make me feel so comfortable. No, Jesus talked and the disciples said in Matthew 19, if that's true, then what's the point? And Jesus' Jesus's response is, exactly. That's why only some people can bear it. So I want to push you. I want you to be stretched. I want you to feel uncomfortable, not because I desire that for your mood and your heart, but because I know it produces growth. So let's explore evil. Now, I'll just say this. I'm gonna let you into my sermon process a little bit. I'm sitting here you know, all week thinking about what direction does this text go? Does this sermon go? What does God want me to say? And as I think about that, I'm like, well, I could just start off kind of easy, you know, like lay down a bunt and just get to first base really easy and then just say something about God's sovereignty that like we could all kind of just really agree with right off the bat, you know, like God is sovereign over everything that happens that's good. And James 1.17 says that and we'd all be like, yeah, totally. God's so good. Awesome. Yeah. We'd all, it's comfortable. It's easy. It's encouraging. And as I prayed about this and thought about this more and more, I was like, okay, God, is that what you want me to do? And then we can incrementally build up our knowledge of sovereignty until we get there. And I got an overwhelming sense of God said, swing for the fences. We're going for a home run today. I want, I want you to go for the hard truth because, this is important, because in the hardness of these truths, The love and encouragement and comfort and joy and pleasure of Jesus Christ is that much more glorious and wonderful to you. So in order to get the best, we have to address the hardest parts. And that's why we're going to explore evil. And and in my intent of exploring evil that exists in this world is, is that this This tends to be the heart of the issue when it comes to God's sovereignty. If we can explain evil and God's sovereignty together, both existing, if evil exists and God is sovereignly in control over every molecule and being and experience and thought and every firing of every neuron that goes through your brain at every moment is all controlled by God, ordained by God, which has to be if God is genuinely in control. Because if that's not true and he's not sovereignly manipulating every molecule for his perfect will so that he would get the most glory. If that's not true, then God is simply reacting to things he doesn't control, which would make him not God. Sovereignty is sovereignty. The word itself means absolute total control. So if he only has control over certain things and not all things totally and completely, then he's not sovereign at all. It's all or none. The word itself by definition means all or none. A great expression of this would be our salvation, that we are elect. Like either he saves us through election, or nobody gets saved. It's all or none. 
And so if we can explain evil and God's sovereignty from Scripture, then that puts much of our concerns or questions about God's sovereignty to rest without changing or damaging what we know about his perfect goodness that contains no evil and no wrongdoing. Now, we would all agree that God does things that are disastrous, right? We would agree God does disastrous things. If you don't agree, just read open to any random page in the Old Testament and you're likely to find God causing disaster. He does it a lot. And these are things, these disastrous things that God does. If, if a human were to do them, we would call that human evil. When Hitler invaded Poland, the whole world called it evil, and we would agree. When he massacred millions of Jews, we called him evil. The whole world agrees. But when God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, we don't call him evil. Why? Because we recognize that God alone determines what is good and evil. He's the judge. And he judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their evil with fire. So we can justify God being destructive because it lines up with our understanding of his justice and his judgment. But what about when we don't see an injustice that requires God's justice? What about when we don't see an injustice that requires God's justice, yet he causes disaster anyway? So unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, we go, well, they deserved it. We see something happen and we go, did they deserve that? This looks like it, there was no injustice that needed God to judge it. So why is this disaster happening? And if it's happening and it, doesn't, it wasn't judgment that required God's justice, then is it from God? How do we answer that question? Well, Job answers that question. So Job, for example, did no wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. Unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, who deserved it, Job says, I didn't do anything wrong. And what God eventually reveals is, well, the point, Job, is you're not like me. And I can do whatever I want. And he even says to Job, where were you? And I made this and that and did all these things. You weren't there. I'm God, I'm in control, I know what I'm doing. The entire book of Job is about God's sovereignty. So Job does no wrong. He's not perfect, he's not sinless, but he has, there's no pragmatic reason for God to make Job's life such a living hell. And yet God ordained evil upon Job. What well, wasn't God, it was Satan, right? You're right. It was Satan who was an agent of God's sovereign will, acting out what God had ordained. And we know this because of what Job says in Job 2.10. After receiving unimaginable suffering from Satan, Job credits God with the evil. Do you hear that statement? Job credits God with the evil. Now, right there, your sensibilities about the nature of God, if you don't already understand this or know this or believe this, this your sensibilities about the nature of God should feel a little ruffled right now for me to say that Job credits God with the evil. Because it sounds a lot like you're saying, Mark, that God is evil. And that's not what Job is saying, nor is it what I'm saying. This is what Job says in Job 2.10. 
Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The Hebrews declare evil from God. Job admits that it was God who caused this evil in his life. He gives God the credit for what Job described specifically as evil. Even though it was Satan who performed the moral evils, it was God's sovereign will to cause Satan to do so. Making God not a performer of evil, but instead an evil agent, Satan, the one who acts in immoral evil. And if you think that maybe Job was wrong, because Job's, Job's the one who says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Maybe Job doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe Job's wrong. Maybe Job's misunderstanding. After all, this is a historical text. It's not telling us what to believe. It's just telling us what happened. And it's recording that Job said something. And maybe Job was wrong. It's recording what he said, but that doesn't mean it's true. It's just there's a lot of things that people in Scripture have said that aren't true. It's just recording what they said. So maybe that's the case. However, the problem with that thought is that scripture puts it to rest at the end of verse 10 where it says in all this job did not sin with his lips so after declaring that god caused the evil scripture then confirms that job is right and not only here but in job 2:10, but also later in job 42 11, which says and they showed they as his are his friends They showed him sympathy and comforted him for what? All the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. God is credited with the evil. God is not credited with evil. He's credited as the cause or ordination of evil without him being culpable to doing evil or being evil because he ordains other evil agents to do his work and thus from Job, we learn that God is sovereign over all evil and ordains all evil without himself being evil or having any sinfulness within him or the ability to do sin or to do evil or to be wrong. Now, is one verse enough to support an entire doctrine? Certainly not. So what else does scripture say about God's sovereignty over evil? Well, in Isaiah 45, 7, God says, this is God speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So he not only says, I create them, and then I make them, and then I create them. He then says, I do these things. Four times in one verse, he's confirming, it's me. If that's not clear, four times I'm clarifying for you, I'm doing this. God is taking credit himself for not only all the good, as James 1.17 tells us that all good things come from God, but he's also taking credit for, in this verse, all the darkness and calamity. Now, we got to pay attention to what our focus is here. My agenda and God's agenda, neither, because I want my agenda to be God's agenda, God's agenda here is not, these verses do not exist so that God is saying to you, I do evil things. I cause evil things. He needs to tell us that because he's determined to tell us that. But the point isn't to focus on God is ordaining evil. The point is 
I control all things, even the things you can't even imagine I control. That's the, that's the point of expressing God's sovereignty over all evil because evil is a part of all things and God is sovereign over all things. And his point isn't, hey, let's focus on me ordaining evil. His point is, let's focus on the fact that I control all things, even the things that you're in your mind, you think he couldn't possibly be in control of that. And in his word, he repeats over and over and over again, but I do, I am, I'm sovereign over those things. Now, the Hebrew word for calamity in Isaiah 45, 7, the Hebrew word for calamity is ra. It's just R and A. Phonetically in English, it's R and an A. Which in every single definition of the word literally means evil. In fact, in your Bible, you might even have a little number next to the word calamity there and then a reference at the bottom that says evil. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But that wouldn't surprise me because if you look up this Hebrew word ra, there are four definitions. And all of them are evil, 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 and evil. Now there's a variation of what that evil is with each of those definitions. But the first definition of every usage of this word is evil. So God is declaring, I create evil. And he not only creates evil, but he creates darkness. Now, I want to... I, I, I'm not going to get into this, okay? But it really feels like it's important to just slip this in there at least. When I say God creates evil, when God says he creates evil, you've got to understand that that doesn't mean he is like, because God can't do evil. So it's not like he's in his workshop and he's like, I'm going to make this thing that's really terrible and I'm going to like put it out there and it's going to be mine. We've got to understand the nature of evil. Evil is the absence of good. So God isn't creating evil in the way that we think of God creating a tree or creating whatever, everything. He isn't putting it together. Evil is the absence of good. So evil is God choosing or ordaining or sovereignly sovereignly willing that certain goods be absent. Certain aspects of his nature be absent in reality. And in the absence of his goodness, evil exists. And it's much like, you know, uh, cold and heat, right? Heat exists. Heat is measurable. We can measure heat, but uh, we can measure heat molecularly, but we cannot measure cold. What is cold? It's simply a word we use to describe the absence of heat. So did God create cold? Not really, because cold doesn't exist. It's just the absence of heat. Did God create evil? Well, not really, but he ordains it to exist in the absence of his goodness. So that's an important reality just to kind of like tuck in the back of your mind that God isn't like up in heaven being like, ooh, I'm going to put together some fun stuff for him and like throw fireballs of evil at people, you know. Um, But it's just the absence of his goodness, which I think there's more to that to discuss. We're just not going to go there. So he not only creates evil, but he creates darkness, according to Isaiah 45, 7. And even though, so he creates darkness, even though 1 John 1, 5 says, In him is no darkness at all. So how do we reconcile those two verses? Now the answer to these texts, to reconcile these texts, is God's two wills. And again, this is something that we're not going to have time to really dig into, but I do need to just clarify it a bit. God has two wills, a sovereign will and a moral will. His sovereign will 
is unbreakable by any being or anything, and it is also unknowable until it happens. And it will happen because God determines by his will that it happened. But God also has a moral will, and his moral will is different from a sovereign will because his moral will expresses his, is expressed in his commands, it's expressed in his instructions, it's expressed in his desires and his wants, and it reveals his desire, it reveals his heart, it reveals an entirely different side of his characteristics and attributes in nature as opposed to what he determines to happen in his sovereign will. So his moral will it reveals his desire. His sovereign will reveals his, his authority to make things happen in the way that he knows will give him and produce for him his greatest glory. His moral will we can know from Scripture. Do this. Don't do that. Follow this command. Don't follow this. Do this. Do that. Okay. But his sovereign will is only revealed when it happens. And both wills exist simultaneously and can operate in what we would perceive as opposition to one another? If God's moral will is that no one does evil, then how can he sovereignly ordain evil while not desiring that there be evil? A question that takes more time than I think we have to answer, but let me just give you a taste. First of all, we all have two wills. Have you ever done something you don't want to do? but you know you must do it, so you do it, despite not desiring to do it because you, because you know that to do it is the right thing to do and that it's good to do, so you do it anyways, despite not wanting to do it. That is you exercising two wills at once. Your desire doesn't match what you have to do, but you have to do it because it's required. And you could choose not to do it, but you're like, this is the right thing to do. I got to do it. I don't want to do it, but I got to do it. An example I've used many times from this pulpit is disciplining your children. No one wants, desires to discipline their children, but you have to. So in your quote unquote sovereign will as a parent, you discipline your child. But in your heart, you're like, I don't want to do this, but I have to. Because this is good. This will produce the best result. And that's exactly how God's two wills operate. His sovereign will is I have to do these things because this will produce my greatest glory and my people's greatest joy in me. So I have to do it. My heart doesn't desire to do certain things. It's not an expression of my heart, but it is. it does need to happen because then the hearts I choose will be filled more fully and so will mine. So God has a sovereign will and a moral will. Now, his sovereign will is always prioritized over his moral will. So his moral will serves his sovereign will. And it is, not, it is that way not because God is subject to his sovereign will. His sovereign will doesn't rule him. He determines that will. But because he determines that his sovereign will is what happens, despite him expressing the goodness of his perfect holiness in his moral will. And his moral will must exist to express his true nature of goodness. That's an important part. His moral will has to exist because it reveals to us the side of God that we need when we realize that God is sovereignly in control of all things. We also need the comfort of knowing that God is patient, kind, loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving, faithful. That he's a shepherd, tends to your needs, 
loves you, cares for you, which is going to be vital to know from Scripture when we start reading some other difficult things about God. So his moral will must exist to express his true nature of goodness. But in order for us to see the goodness of his grace, he casts it upon the black backdrop of evil, like an engagement ring in a box. His grace is a shining diamond which shines brighter and is seen as more glorious when behind it sits the black felt of the jewelry box that is called evil. The darkness behind his grace that he ordains, he must ordain, and place it right where it belongs so that his grace shines even brighter. So you could say that evil and God's grace are a package deal according to his sovereign will. Because the more that evil is relevant, the more his grace is prominent. Evil must exist in every nook and cranny of reality, everywhere. Because that's the difficult thing when you think, well, okay, I understand. Okay, yeah, okay, God's evil. Big idea, big general picture. God, did I just say God is evil? Oh, I did not mean to say that. The Holy Spirit was like, stop, go back. God, ugh. God ordains evil. I know I forgot my point. <laughs> oh, now I remember. Okay, so... It's, I, think, I think when you really think about it, when you start to get down into like the, you know, the, the details of what this must mean, if God is really ordaining all evils, and then I see these particular evils, and I have to think to myself, God's causing that? There's no way that God is okay with that. And it's like, yeah, the reason you think that is because you are thinking about his moral will. He also is not okay with that. And scripture is abundantly clear that God is not okay with sin, that he hates it, commands us not to do it, and says, I don't do it either. But it has to be everywhere. It has to be in every tiny molecule that exists in the world. It has to influence and take every single part of your being and every part of reality. This is why wood decays. Every molecule in a piece of wood is dying. And God is moment by moment causing its death slowly. Every aspect of reality has to be inundated with sin and evil for his grace to be most fully expressed in redeeming not only man, but redeeming all of creation. That's Romans 8. This is essentially the answer that Paul provides in Romans 9 when explaining God's sovereign will and answering the question about how God can find guilt in beings that he controls. Paul answers that question. I won't today, but Paul does. Now, in order to assure that he alone gets all the glory for his grace to us, he must also assure that all of reality is tainted by sin, meaning he must ordain and cause sin and evil to exist to its fullest extent, making his grace that much more satisfying. Meaning he must exercise both his moral will, expressing his desire for goodness, while also exercising his sovereign will, which expresses his desire for his goodness to be better perceived through his grace, by him ordaining all evil. Now, let me give you some biblical examples so that our dependence on this truth is not just reason and logic, but God's very own words about himself. Amos 3.6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
This is his sovereign will, not his moral will. Because this verse doesn't, this isn't Sodom and Gomorrah, where we look at them and say, well, they're evil and they deserved it. This is, this verse doesn't qualify God bringing disaster for the reason of judgment on evil people, but rather it is a general statement that declares that if disaster comes to a city, regardless of the reason, God is the cause. It is God who did it. He says, I, I do it, even if it's not judgment for sin. Ezekiel 6.10. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. That is his sovereign will, declaring of himself that he will do this evil. Now, if we didn't understand all of scripture. So first of all, you could look at that verse and say, how can you argue with God ordaining and causing evil? It says it right here. I would do this evil. And he says, I didn't say that in vain. I mean it. That's God's way of saying, I mean it when I say I'm doing this evil. Now, I could look at that and say, how could you not believe what I'm telling you? It says it right there, plain and clear in this verse. On the other hand, You could say that if we're looking at this verse plain and clear, it's saying that God does evil, which he can't because he's good and there's no evil in him. He's only good. He, all of himself is good. He can't do evil. So again, this is an example of where we look at scripture, we see the verse, and we have to contextualize it with everything we know about God and about scripture. God is going to do this evil. He doesn't say that I am evil, but he's gonna do evil. And if we know he can't do wrong, then we also know that he must not be the one performing the evil, but that there must be something in between God and the, the thing that receives the evil that is doing it, which God must be sovereign over. And there's plenty of biblical uh, evidence for that as well. Jeremiah 19, 9. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. Now, this one's interesting. That's sin. To eat the flesh of people, to sacrifice a person, according to God's law, that's sin. And he says that he, God says that he will make them do it, which means God is exercising his sovereign will to cause someone to do evil despite it opposing his moral will that says that, that, that this is sin to do it. And that in God's morality says, I hate this, so I made a law against it, but I'm gonna cause you to do it. So God has a moral that says, I don't approve this, I don't like it, don't do it, but he say, but I'm gonna make you do it. What do we do with that? We gotta wrestle with these texts. Second Chronicles 18.22, the Lord has put a lying spirit in, my mouth, in the mouth of these prophets. That's God causing evil through the evil agents. So this is an expression of how the evil agents work and that God has these beings, whether they're supernatural beings or physical humans like us, he uses agents that do certain things. So these evil agents are the lying spirits to ensure evil happens on this earth, which fulfills his sovereign will despite hating such a thing. Zechariah 14.2. Now this one, embrace yourselves and let me also respond to it. 
I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. That is God saying he will cause these nations to do this. We know this because he's talking about Babylon's invasion of Jerusalem, which God told Habakkuk was an evil nation. Babylon was an evil nation that God tells Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1 that he, God, intentionally raised up. He made Babylon for evil. He tells Habakkuk, I made them evil since I raised them up in their evil. To do this very thing, to answer Israel's evil, to answer the evil of Judah. So I'm going to make Babylon, and I'm going to make them evil, and I'm going to send them into Jerusalem and destroy Judah for their evil. And guess what Habakkuk felt about that? Probably the same way you and I feel about that. Like, what are you doing, God? That's not fair. That's not right. You can't answer evil with evil. Habakkuk doesn't like it like we don't like it. That God would cause evil. So God tells Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.4. Have faith. He says the righteous shall live by faith. He's telling Habakkuk. Dude. Trust me. Trust me. And then what do we see? Thousands of years later. After Habakkuk trusts God. We see deliverance in the form of God himself. As a baby boy born into this world for your salvation, which was a product of God destroying Judah for their evil through Babylon that God caused. So we actually get real life examples of God causing evil and that evil producing a good thing that saves us. God isn't just running around me like, I'm just going to throw evil wherever I feel like it just because it's fun. It all has a purpose and a reason, and the reason is going to magnify his glory. If Judah continues the way they do and Babylon doesn't invade, the people will never find the opportunity while they're in captivity to the Babylonians to hear from Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets saying, people, salvation is coming. It's required. God had to cause the evil. So that the salvation in Jesus would come. So that the promises would come to the people of Israel while they're in captivity. And they would anticipate the coming of the Lord. So that Jesus would be born. And so that what would happen? God's people, the Israelites, would murder him. Which is evil. And it's his will. Because in the garden Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And what was the father's will? To have the son killed. And how was the son killed? On a cross. Was it justified? Not even a little bit. Meaning, in order for the son of God who's perfect and has no guilt, in order for him to be killed, evil men had to perform evil on Jesus. And Jesus says, this is the father's will. Meaning, the father's sovereign will is evil for Jesus. So that through Jesus, we would get salvation. When I say evil for Jesus, I mean evil upon Jesus. People performing evil against Jesus. Just for clarity. So, this all sounds super discouraging. 
So now am I supposed to think that God's evil? No, of course not. He is not evil, nor does he do anything evil ever. He can't. It's, uh, it opposes his nature. It's impossible. Um, can you breathe underwater? No. You can't breathe underwater. You never will be able to. It's not who you are. It's not your nature. It'll never happen. Just like God can't sin and God can't be evil and God can't perform evil deeds. He ordains sovereignly. He just ordains sovereignly. Because he's God. And he says in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So he's doing what he does to ensure he accomplishes his greatest possible glory through his grace toward us, which is most magnified in the presence of evil. And the greater the evil, the more that evil permeates all of reality, which he has to control and cause and ordain. And the more evil permeates all of reality, the better his grace and therefore the greater his glory. So that's encouraging, but let me encourage you even more by showing you how his sovereign will and moral will work together and how that is a comforting reality for us. And I think one of the best places that we see both of these truths expressed in a compact section of text where both his sovereign will and moral will come together is Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3, 31 through 38. Let's just walk through it quick. Verse 31. The Lord will not cast off forever. Yay! Meaning, like, if, God, if, if you're suffering, essentially, is what it means. If you're suffering, it's not going to be forever. And this is God's way of saying, I care about you. If you're going through tough things, it's not going to be forever. But what does it tell us? That when we are cast off, it's from him. Who does the casting? The Lord will not cast off. Forever, meaning the Lord will cast off. He will cast off you. You will suffer from the Lord, but not forever. So it's like, I'm sovereign, but I'm gracious. I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I'm understanding. And this has a purpose. This isn't for your death. This is for life. So it's an expression of his moral will and his sovereign will all in one. Verse 32. But though he cause grief... Have you ever felt grief? Ever felt bad? Have you ever sinned? And then felt bad about that sin? I think everyone has. Have you ever done something you're not proud of, feel bad about? God causes that grief. Have you ever suffered grief? Have you ever suffered things that aren't a cause of you? You didn't cause it. You didn't do it. You didn't perform a sin. You didn't do anything evil. You just, it just happened to you. And it was grievous. That was God. Now, if that's like, what? what? What the heck? Why is he doing this to me? There's comfort coming. So that's God's sovereign will. Though he caused grief, it's expressing that despite his compassion and his moral will, nevertheless, he will cause you grief. And your grief can only happen as a product of evil. Evil causes grief, meaning grief can only come from evil, which God just declared he causes. Right? Grief can't happen unless someone's doing something evil. Like we see this in 1 Peter 3.17. He says, um, I forget the first word. When I, when I can't get the first word, it just throws me through a loop. So let me just read it. 
I remembered it. But I'm there, so. For, <laughs> for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Meaning, if you suffer for doing good, meaning you don't deserve to suffer, Peter says, that's God's will. If that should be God's will. Well, if what should be God's will? The point is, you're going to suffer. But it's going to be you suffering either for doing good or for doing evil. And Peter's saying, it's better that your suffering come from you doing good, not evil. Because you're going to suffer anyways. So it might as well be from doing good. And if it is, that is God's will. And in order for you to suffer... What has to happen? Someone has to do something that causes your suffering. And in order to cause suffering, it has to be an evil. So someone has to perform an evil against you. And that evil done against you will cause you to suffer. So despite someone doing something evil to you, Peter's saying, well, you do good in response to their evil. So that when you suffer, it's suffering for doing good. And by the way, that suffering is God's will, meaning The person who caused the evil on you that produced your suffering was God's will. God ordained their evil upon you for your suffering. And your response should be to respond in good. Lamentations 3.32. He will have... Now this is... Just slow down for a second. Just read this. Absorb this verse, okay? Because everything else I've said today I think is a hard truth. I don't expect you to walk out of here today and be like, I'm convinced. You know, like if you're like, man, I don't know, dude, that is, that feels like it's crossing a line or something like that, or that's pushing it or whatever. Um, This is why I'm trying to use as much text as possible so that it's not just me coming up with these ideas. I'm telling you what scripture is saying. But here's the thing. Even within all of this, God repeats. So God is weaving his sovereign and moral will throughout Lamentations 3. And he tells us this. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. What that means is when I cause that grief, my sovereign will demands that I cause your grief, that you suffer for a purpose that is good and glorious. Trust me, have faith. The righteous will live by faith. They will believe that I sovereignly cause and ordain this evil upon them for their suffering. They'll know that, but I cannot let you forget that in the midst of the suffering that I have ordained for you, that is caused by an evil agent I have ordained against you, I am still your loving shepherd. Because I still want to express my moral will. He still has compassion in the midst of your grief. He still has an abundance of steadfast love that is there to rescue you and comfort you and support you. God has to cause these evils in your life. You have to suffer because Christ suffered and we have to share in his suffering. It has to happen. And in order for the suffering to happen, evil, like it happened to Jesus, has to happen to you. And isn't it awesome That God, the one who is compassionate and steadfast in love, is the one who is in control of it instead of Satan who hates you. That's comforting. That's a joy. That's, That's a wonderful reality. That God, in the midst of telling you that he's sovereignly causing things, that he expresses his sovereign will, he also doesn't take, doesn't, he takes the chance to also say, and my moral will too. And those are not incompatible. When God's thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are not your ways. 
Verse 33, for he does not, this is so comforting, listen to this. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. What? He just said he does it. He just says, I cause grief. And he says, but I don't do it willingly. Well, if you didn't will it, then how's it happen? Because what he's saying is he doesn't morally, his moral will doesn't want to do it, but his sovereign will has to do it. So he's going to do it, even though his heart aches for you while he does it. And so he puts these in the parameter of his two wills. And we see both these realities come to the surface in scripture itself. And we go, what do we do with these? They seem like they oppose each other. And God says, but they don't because I do all of this. Verses 34 through 36, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve, but he does it. He causes it. He ordains it, but he does not approve. What? How do we reconcile? Two wills. That's his moral will, expressing to us that which does not please him. Yet we know that this very thing happens. And if it happens, it causes affliction and grief, which God just said he ordains. Verse 37, who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. There are very few verses in scripture that are this clear about his absolute sovereignty. That's his sovereign will. That is God saying that every word you speak, every thought you have, every outcome of life, every molecule, everything, everything that does come to pass, every outcome of life is commanded, ordained, dictated, caused by God's sovereign will. Who's spoken and it come to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it to come to pass. Verse 38. If verse 37 wasn't enough, this will be. Is it not? It's a rhetorical question, by the way. Is, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That's a sovereign will. And it's the statement that puts all of the rest to rest, that whether it is good or bad, whether it is good or evil, it comes from God, he sovereignly ordains it, and it will come to pass. Now, if any of this is unsettling, which I'm sure it can be, there is encouragement and hope in all of this. And let me tell you, you probably, I hope you do, have a lot of questions after this. You should be going, well, if that's true, then, and again, back to that question I asked you to think about earlier, if God is sovereign over evil, then fill in the blank. Write those questions down. Think about them. Look in scripture. Come to me. I have in my possession right now a document that is a list of verses. I have a ton of documents in my phone that are all different subject matters, and one of them is specifically God's sovereignty. And in that document, it's a running document that's not yet complete, I have 183 verses about God's sovereignty. And it's growing because as I read scripture constantly, I'm going, oh, there it is. And as I learn more about the nature of God, the nature of God I learned from 183 texts starts to influence how I see the next text. Now, I'm not suggesting we should take an idea that the verse isn't saying and push a different idea into it. That's called eisegesis. That's bad. We don't do that. Okay. But what happens is reality, 
the reality of what happens is when we read scripture, we can see other attributes of God are at play in this, even if that verse isn't specifically about it. And God's sovereignty is one that is like so prominent and so questionable and so difficult that it's obvious when we see it. So if any of this is unsettling, there is encouragement and hope in all of this. Like I said earlier, it is such a blessing to recognize and to believe and to understand that the evil things that happen in this world are under the control of the God who has made a promise that there will be a day when there is no more evil. When all evils are answered, when all justices are justified, when God answers everything, when he destroys and judges every evil and every evil person who has rejected him, and when he will comfort us in eternal bliss where there is no longer the existence of sin or evil or death or any of that. And in order for us to get there, God must ordain this here. And if God has to ordain this here, don't you want him Not the enemy to be in control of what you experience. Satan thought he was in control of what was happening to Job. God's like, you can do this and that. I set the parameters. I determine what happens. And Job goes through the suffering and goes, it wasn't Satan. It was God. And then he goes to God and he's like, what are you doing, God? And God doesn't go, whoa, 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 Job. This wasn't me. That was Satan, dude. Why are you getting mad at me? I didn't cause any of this. What is God's response to Job's complaint? Job's like, why would you do this, God? And God goes, whoa, 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 who are you to ever question what I do? God doesn't deny that he did it. He confirms he did it by saying, I did everything. I made the world. I made the, the, the giants in the world. I made the trees. I, where were you, Job, when I created everything? That's God saying, I'm the cause. And I have a purpose, just like he told Habakkuk. Trust me, dude. Trust me. I've got a plan. This is for good. And in order for that good to happen, these evils have to happen. And in order for the evils to happen in a way where I get the most glory and you are most satisfied, I have to be in control of all of this. Because if I'm not in control of all of this, then I'm not sovereign. And if I'm not sovereign, then I don't have control. And if I don't have control, I can't express my power and I can't actually exist because there is no God then. So it is a comforting and encouragement reality that God is in control of all things, that God has to ordain the evil because it puts the God who expresses his moral will of, I love you, I care for you, compassion is coming your way, there's an answer for all the evils that have been done to you. If you have had an evil done to you that is so painful and so difficult and such a suffering that you still carry with you to this very day, God is like, trust me, just have faith. There will be a day when I will serve justice on that evil that happened to you and you will be wholly satisfied. Just endure a little longer. Because Psalm 119.75 says, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness. Not out of anger. Not because you're mean. Not because you're evil. Because you're faithful. That's why you've afflicted me. God, why have you done this to me? Why am I suffering? Why are there evils in my life that have come upon me and caused hardship in my life? Why would you ordain this? Because I'm faithful. 
I'm faithful to my promise, and my promise is eternal life. And part of that promise includes your suffering in this life, so you know what Jesus went through, because Jesus had to suffer for your sins. Jesus had to endure, and now you've got to follow Jesus, which means follow his path, which means suffer too, which means evil has to exist around you and in your life. So, in faithfulness, I've afflicted you. Because the result is further faithfulness. The result is faithfulness again. More of it in eternity. Yeah. Now, I'll just say one last thing. If this creates more questions, good thing. We have a lifetime of growing to do together. We can't have it all. We can't have all the answers today. But in time, we dig into God's word together. We will see him more and more for who he truly is. And even if it offends our sensibilities, we still have to believe his word. Let's pray. Father, um, I know that I am not perfect and that My sermons can't be perfect. So, for any imperfections that poured out of my mouth today, any slight misconceptions or ideas that you don't want, destroy them in our minds and replace it with truth. Reveal to us the true reality of your nature Humble us in your presence and surround us with your compassion and faithfulness, with your joy and your pleasure and your son. Help us to absorb the truth of your word. Help us to dig into your word. Help us to go to your word, to discover what is true about you so that as we praise you, it would be right. And as it is right, it will be glorifying. Satisfy our hearts in who you are for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.